Welcome to our continuing 2020 educational webinar series. I am Katherine Short, Partnership Marketing Manager for First Healthcare Compliance. At First Healthcare Compliance, we help you with a comprehensive compliance management solution tailored to your business. A hospital, hospital network, healthcare practice of any size, billing company, or skilled nursing facility, and we manage every aspect of a compliance program and our training library provides hundreds of modules that are easy to assign and track. As part of our complimentary educational webinar series, we bring you experts from around the country to discuss relevant topics in the healthcare industry. We are so pleased to have Lauren Russell, counsel at Young, Conway, Stargat, and Taylor with us today. Lauren specializes in the representation of employers on a range of issues relating to compliance with local, state, and federal labor and employment laws and constitutional provisions. She provides compassionate and rep responsive counsel targeted at achieving client goals while minimizing cost and risk. Lauren emphasizes client counseling on issues ranging from wage and hour compliance to workplace training and investigations to effective employee terminations with the goal of avoiding litigation before it begins. Her counseling practice includes handbook revisions, effective policy implementation, and on-site training on legal compliance. Lauren has developed and conducts specialized in-house training for emerging legal issues related to discrimination, harassment, and workplace accommodations. A copy of the slides is available for download on the control panel. Feel free to submit questions into the question box on your control panel during the presentation. We will address questions at the conclusion of the presentation. Your PACOM and PMI CEU certificates will be emailed to you following the broadcast. Your PACOM certificate will come directly from PACOM and your PMI certificate will come from our email. There is no need to request either one. Additional CEU opportunities will be available to BC Advantage members following the live broadcast. See their website for details. A download of the handout is available with a button on the bottom right-hand side of your screen. So welcome, Lauren. Thank you for being here. Thank you very, very much. <clears throat> Excuse me. I am thrilled to be here. I'm thrilled to talk about um, the definition of emerging issues, right? We are <laughs> learning uh, in a way that we uh, never knew we could about how to adapt to, um, you know, what I suspect for my career is going to be really, you know, sort of a, a unique and defining moment. And I think that that's true for uh, most of the clients that we are uh, talking about uh, as well. Um, you know, <clears throat> we're <laughs> really being tested in, uh, in, in our adaptability these days. And so, uh, while that is a wonderful challenge and learning experience for all of us, it can also be really intensely stressful. And I'm hoping that we can, uh, work through these issues, um, together today so that everybody leaves the webinar feeling, you know, like they've got a, a, a at least a roadmap. Um, I do want to emphasize that every business is different. And I think that's one of the things that makes counseling about, um, you know, this reopening process that we're going through really difficult. Uh, hopefully, as I talk, um, we're going to see that these topics apply in very similar ways to businesses 
um, that have been completely shut down and are just starting the reopening process. And also businesses, and I suspect this is most of the healthcare industry, that have been operating through the pandemic, but you've been operating at decreased capacity. Only uh, truly uh, emergency matters, for example. Um, I know that uh, a lot of my clients who are sort of in the um, dental field, in dermatology, um, and in some of the other um, uh, lines of lines of healthcare that have perhaps more of a cosmetic um, wing, that they have shut down uh, things like um, routine hygiene and um, annual checkups. I know that's true for a lot of OBGYN practices um, and are really just focusing on people who have <clears throat> dental emergencies, um, pregnant patients for OBGYN uh, practices, things like that. Certainly for surgical practices, um, you know, elective surgeries are being put off. But we're going to find that as we start reincorporating a lot of those um, quote unquote elective procedures that we're going to be facing the exact same problems. So what are we talking about here today? Uh, we're going to start with, um, you know, the, the process of recalling employees. Do we really need to? How are we going to manage that? How are we going to make these decisions? Once we have started recalling, how are we going to recall staff? Um, if our business doesn't fully resume and we need to maintain people on furlough or reduce the workforce. How do we accomplish that? Um, and as we're doing all of this, how do we incorporate these new types of leave? Um, there are really four categories of leave that we're going to be talking about um, and, and how do we manage that process. Um, then we will talk about uh, managing unemployment. Uh, this is probably, of, of, of the calls that I'm getting from my clients, um, at least 50% of them <laughs> involve questions about the ability to recall employees from unemployment and employee unwillingness to return to work. So that's been a major issue I'm seeing. And then um, last uh, but not least, addressing workplace safety concerns. Um, this is sort of last on our to-do list because I think that it is consuming a tremendous amount of mental energy for employers, but hopefully by the time we're done talking about it, you're going to realize it doesn't need to consume that much. Uh, people are very, very worried about the legal exposure from uh, employees getting sick on site um, when they are recalled to work. And uh, while we can't stop employees from filing lawsuits, um, I think we are going to see as this situation progresses that employees are experiencing uh, very little success with these types of lawsuits. So we're going to talk about mitigating the risk there, of course, but um, the reason that it's sort of last is that I don't think that there's all that much that you're going to need to do that you aren't already doing. So hopefully good news on that front. All right, so <clears throat> when we are talking about recall, as I said, the considerations are going to be very similar, um, whether we are returning from a complete closure, whether we are ramping up from partial closure um, to, uh, you know, a more fulsome practice, 
um, whether we are in full operations and everybody's been working remotely and you're just going to move them back to the, to the work site. The leave issues certainly are going to be identical for all of these groups. Um, when we talk about uh, who needs to be in the office and who needs to be out of the office and, and, and things like that, again, similar concerns. So um, uh, hopefully this will be useful and insightful to, uh, to all listeners, regardless of sort of the stage that your business is in. All right, so let's start with when, when I say recalling, it, it can mean two things um, that I sort of hinted at with the last slide. One is that everybody has been out of work, either unemployed or on furlough, and we are bringing them back to an active work status. Or, and this is many, many businesses across the country, everybody is working remotely and we are starting to recall employees to the office. Um, let's focus for a minute on sort of the uh, the in-office versus out-of-office process. The very first question that we need to ask is, um, well, it, it's sort of a two-part question. Who do we need to ensure business continuity right now? And where do they need to be located? And this is a struggle that I really have with my clients. Um, not all of them, but many of them feel very strongly um, that they want people on site. And it is lovely if you can do your job remotely, but the reality is I like it better when I can look you in the face. I know exactly where you are at any time of the day. It is easier for me to monitor and supervise your productivity. But that demand comes with risk right now. And we need to uh, think critically um, and with a more open mind about whether employees who can work remotely really need to be in the office. Um, so let's talk about your receptionist, for example, in a small medical practice. Um, this person serves some important functions as the face of your business. They greet patients. Um, they are, you know, really in a lot of ways sort of an ambassador for your business. And I know with the small medical practices I've, I've you know, seen in the, in the course of my life, um, sometimes you have a deeper relationship with the uh, front desk staff than you do with your doctor. You certainly spend more time chatting with them, you're scheduling, they're calling you for reminders, you're calling them to reschedule and, um, you know, then having a quick chat while you're in the waiting room, for example. That is an important function, but is it a function that your business actually needs right now? Um, a lot of practices are not even allowing people into a waiting room. So what happens is you uh, pull up in the parking lot, and you call, and, uh, and, and they say, okay, well, the doctor's ready uh, for you. Please come in through the doors, proceed directly to exam room two. Do not um, stop uh, to, uh, in, in the waiting area. Um, if that's the case, your secretary can do that from home, right? Um, and if you don't have software or, or a phone system that allows you to reroute calls to somebody's cell phone, I would strongly suggest in the current environment that you invest in that. Um, 
So again, even when this is an individual who really had a, a large role in face-to-face -face communications, their job may be more appropriately done from home right now. So keep in mind that um, for many of the states that are reopening right now, guidelines encourage continued re remote work and that we need to comply with those guidelines to the extent possible, particularly where we're talking about high risk uh, populations, individuals in that 60 to 65 age range and older, individuals who have chronic health conditions, um, individuals with obesity, heart problems, diabetes, right? I am reading, a, a rattling off a list from the CDC's website. Everybody listening to this knows vastly more than I do about, you know, these high-risk categories. But the reality is that um, if you're you know, front desk staff, if your records clerks fall into those categories, um, and there is a way, you know, with electronic medical records for them to do that work from home, you really need to strongly consider it, even if you are more comfortable having people in the office. Um, we need to keep all of this in mind in terms of whether we're conducting a partial or complete return to work. So um, clinical staff, need to be by and large in the office, right? Unless you are doing telehealth consults, um, you need to be able to, I don't know, feel my glands or, uh, you know, examine the color of my skin and see, uh, you know, be able to push on my fingernails if there are questions about, you know, um, my blood, my circulation. So the reality is that there are some jobs that you absolutely have to be physically present for. But again, a lot of the clerical staff can oftentimes stay off-site, and we need to think about that. Um, one of the things that we are seeing is that, you know, we've got two months under our belts right now. Um, are there positions that really, as, as I was talking about, can sort of be moved to a remote work environment on an indefinite basis? Um, I sort of referenced that productivity is, has been a major concern for a lot of clients under these circumstances. And we need to think critically about how to manage these issues remotely. Uh, very large <clears throat> corporations have been dealing with these kinds of problems for a long, long time because uh, flexibility in remote work has been a popular uh, perk. Uh, for large organizations for a long time. It helps reduce overhead. Um, so what does it mean from a management perspective? There is going to be more frequent check-in. You are going to have to establish some new expectations and uh, really help employees understand that if they want the perk of working remotely, and it's a perk but also a safety issue right now, then uh, you know we're going to have to find ways to do that effectively. And I think that as um, childcare facilities reopen and those options become more available, we are going to see an increase in um, employees' abilities to sort of work from home in a more dedicated capacity. Um, one of the last considerations we need to take um, into account, we're going to talk about this a little bit in more detail when we talk about leave, is that um, high-risk employees in a lot of states are sort of mandated to continue working remotely. That is true here in Delaware, where I am located. Um, while we are beginning to reopen businesses effective June 1st, 
Uh, the most recent guidance that I have seen from our governor says, even though we are reopening, we are doing it under a lot of limitations. And one of those limitations is that high-risk workers really need to continue to um, stay out of the out of the office. Um, and so we need to think about rejiggering some of our job duties, right? Um, if you have high-risk employees who have um, a mix of duties that can be done in the office and outside of the office, can we transition more of their work to outside of the office? Um, can we reassign their office duties to somebody who's going to be in the office anyway um, and, and manage it that way? So these are all considerations that we need to think about. And it may be that for the success of the business that we do restructure some jobs for an you know the, the the intermediate period right the next let's say six to twelve months um hopefully it won't be that long but you know we're hearing from a lot of um you know experts that we may see another spike in uh in in, in coronavirus cases coming in the fall and so we should take this summer period this reopening period to really get our feet under ourselves and think about if this happens again in three months what are we going to do? How are we going to manage that so that we can ensure continuity and protect the most vulnerable employees? All right. Um, so once we've sort of decided what our needs are and you know how job duties can be divided, how are we going to return? Um, are we doing all employees all at the same time? Um, that may be necessary depending on the nature of your business. Hospitals, right, they, they never came away from all employees all the time, really. Um, but again, think of different divisions of your business in different ways. So clinical staff have been in hospitals the entire time, but maybe billing and uh, collections and insurance and all of that stuff, maybe they have moved to more remote work. I don't know. Um, if you have a um, sort of a private practice scenario, um, are we returning all employees to work but on rotating schedules? Um, this is what my my office has elected to do, that they are splitting all of our staff 50-50. Uh, and everybody's gonna be working an A, B schedule. So we'll all work 100% of the time, but group A will be in the office Monday, Wednesday, Friday, uh, and group B will be there Tuesday, Thursday following week we switch and so people get some of the productivity and the convenience of being in the office but it allows us to draw down the number of people so that we can more easily maintain social distancing and things like that so that is one option um, then you know last option is do we not rotate do we just identify who is completely essential and uh, only return those individuals. If your practice has taken a hit, um, if clients, patients are nervous about coming back for uh, routine treatments, um, dental hygiene, um, you know, uh, your annual dermatology appointment, your annual uh, OBGYN uh, appointment, if if people want to put that off, you may not need 100% of your staffing levels. Um, it may be that if you had, and I, I talk a lot about dental offices because I represent a lot of dental offices. <laughs> um, 
but if you have um, 10 hygienists um, and you only need, you know, five of them, are you going to recall all 10 on a part-time basis? Are you going to only recall five of them on a full-time basis? Um, there are benefits and drawbacks to both approaches. And, uh, you know, you want to think critically about how you're going to manage that. Um, because there's, especially, especially when there's a reduction in hours, employees continue to be eligible for unemployment. And so there's just a management burden to having to report to the Department of uh, Unemployment Insurance. That's what they're called here in Delaware. Whoever, whatever uh, division of your state manages unemployment. You're going to have to send in reports every week. For the following 45 employees worked this schedule, and this is a reduction from what their normal full-time schedule is, so that the Department of Unemployment Insurance can then calculate what their benefits allocation is. Um, and so from an administrative perspective, oftentimes it's easier to leave, you know, 50% of your staff fully furloughed and 50% of your staff uh, recalled to full-time work just so that you're not having to make those weekly reports. Uh, but again, there are drawbacks to that. Um, and, you know, trying to distinguish who stays on furlough and who does not um, is very difficult. So when everybody returns, there are very few worries, right? You cannot accuse somebody of discrimination when the entire practice was shut down, 100% of people were laid off, uh, now the entire practice is up and running, 100% of people have been recalled on these same terms and conditions. In terms of discrimination claims, very little risk here. Um, we have the same situation when we're doing partial returns, um, all employees in a single job classification, for example. So we are not recalling any of our um, cleaning staff uh, because we've outsourced all of that, but we are recalling 100% of our clinical staff. Um, again, easy peasy because there's a very clear delineation. Anybody with this job title gets recalled. Anybody with that job title does not get recalled. When we are picking and choosing, Going back to our 10 hygienist situation, we only have 50% of our hygiene work that has returned. Um, so we have 50% of the hours available. If we recall only five of our 10 hygienists and we do it on a full-time basis, um, that can create risk because how do we pick those five individuals, right? Um, if we say, well, we want these five people because they don't have children, so they're going to be more reliable, that's discrimination. Uh, we want these five people because they're young and healthy, and we don't think they're, as, uh, they're going to need leave uh, during this crazy time we've got. That's discrimination, right? Um, one of the ways that you can deal with this risk, and that I like very much, is ask for volunteers first, right? Um, if you have 10 hygienists and you only need five people, reach out and with a letter saying we are beginning to recall people. Um, we do not currently have a full volume of uh, hygienic appointments. And so we are reaching out to all of you to uh, find out who wants to return first. Um, if, you, if we have more volunteers than we need, then we will come up with a methodology to allocate the work. Uh, if we have fewer volunteers than we need, we may recall you, you know, involuntarily, but we really want to start with, with those people who are looking to return to the office first. 
you will get some volunteers. Um, my experience has been with my clients that um, they are getting fewer volunteers than they need. People have been surprised by how, how many individuals out there want to um, return to a more normal, you know, level of, of, of interaction and, and, and getting out of the house and, and accomplishing the, the, the daily life activities that we do. Um, but the nice thing about asking for volunteers is nobody can accuse you of discrimination. We took everybody who asked, right? Um, do be clear in these situations. Um, if you are recalling only 50% of your staff because you have only 50% of the volume of your business, then, uh, you know, it, in hopes that, that it'll pick up again in the fall, that's great. But what if it doesn't pick up again in the fall, right? What if you stay at 50% of your business and we just see, you know, a six or eight month reduction in um, the volume of services that are being provided? Um, what are we going to do to those people who did not volunteer to come back? Um, you know, usually what we say is, you know, we will reach out to the rest of you um, as business picks up. Um, but of course, we don't make any guarantees. So be, just be very clear with them. Um, because a lot of people are sort of going to assume, like, of course, the business is going to bounce back 100%. And it'll look exactly like it did before, you know, the coronavirus at some point in the near future. We just don't know that that's going to be the case yet. We don't have enough experience to, to say whether that's going to happen or not. Um, so, you know, let's, let's sort of put a pin in that and, and make sure that employees have realistic expectations. Um, we also want to be clear about whether furlough benefits are going to be lost. So uh, a lot of medical practices furloughed their employees, which means that you, are, you remain on the payroll, but you're not getting paid, right? So it's a long-term unpaid leave. Uh, many businesses elected to pay some amount of their employees' salary or hourly wages to help them get by. Um, many businesses elected to cover the full cost of health insurance for their employees while they were on furlough. If you're going to change that practice as you start recalling employees, let them know up front so that they can decide whether to volunteer. You've got to give them full information so that they can make an accurate determination. So let's talk about our last option, which is partial returns we pick, right? So we are going to select who it is that we want to return to work. Um, Tom, Dick, and Harry, you are coming back. Sally, Sue, and May, we don't want you. Off you go. Uh, this is a, is a risky approach. And we need to um, think really carefully about the way that we are going to do that to avoid uh, bias claims. So um, when we pick, the very first thing we need to do is identify super clear criteria for who is coming back. Um, I have a lot of uh, clients in the retail industry who are doing this based on um, sales metrics. So we are bringing back our best sales employees first because they make us the most money and that allows us to sustain the pieces of our operation that are non-revenue generating. Um, we have sort of a different structure in the medical field, right? So um, oftentimes, you know, that's not going to be a, an effective way to look at it. But if you have productivity metrics, 
whether it's about revenue generation or some other type of productivity, um, that is absolutely a valid uh, way to make the determination. You can do it seniority-based. Uh, uh, so we are going to recall the longest-serving uh, employees first. You've got to define how how you're judging seniority, right? Um, if you don't have a unionized workforce, you probably don't have a, a very clear seniority process in place. Um, but is it seniority with the employer? If you've had a break in service, so what if I left uh, for a year and a half because I wanted to be a stay-at-home parent, um, and then I decided, no, 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 I do want to go back to work. Staying at home is not for me, and I rejoined the the, the business. Um, do I subtract that one and a half years from my total years of service? Did I start over when I came back? Uh, and so all of the years I served before that 18 months leave don't count at all. Uh, are you doing seniority in the job position, right? So um, I have been with the company for 25 years, but I've only been a billing clerk for six months. And you want to call the, recall the most experienced billing clerk or the most experienced uh, filing clerk what have you, take your pick. Uh, you just need to think critically about, you know, is service to the overall organization what we care about? Is service in a specific job what we care about? These things matter and, and they bear consideration. And then once you have those criteria, write them down somewhere. And there's no wiggle room, right? Um, people get into a tremendous amount of trouble when we say, okay, here are our criteria. And then you get to a specific department where you've been having trouble. And you think, you know who's the troublemaker in this department? Bob. Bob's the worst. He's been here forever, but he is a cancer in our organization. Have we disciplined him? No, because he's just got a bad attitude. He's miserable to be around. Um, and so we skip over Bob, right? Uh, if we deviate from our policies and practices, because Bob is a miserable human being and Sue is a joy. She is a love. Everybody is happier when Sue is around. Yes, she's only been with the organization for 12 months, but she has busted her behind and she has worked really hard. Uh, you're recalling individuals in every other department on the basis of seniority and performance metrics. And Bob and Sue are you know, being picked because I like one and I don't like the other. You expose yourself to tremendous risk of discrimination claims there. Um, so figure out the metrics, write them down, and stick to them. Um, a lot of clients use a sort of a last distinguishing factor, disciplinary history. Um, again, think critically about what discipline matters to you right now. Um, anybody who's on a final written warning, anybody who's had performance evaluations that are below meet status, uh, meets expectations, those kinds of things. Um, you know, is, is that super important? Does it outweigh performance metrics? Um, do we care a lot about attendance right now? Probably yes. If you only have 50% of your staff in the office, it's that much more important that everybody shows up on a given day. Um, what about policy and safety violations? We want people who are going to follow the rules, wash their hands, uh, socially isolate at home. All of these things are really important. Um, depending on the size of your organization, um, you may want to uh, conduct statistical analysis. Um, that 
if your organization is not enormous, if you are not, um, you know, of a of a size where statistical analysis of your employee population is useful, um, then still take a look at, at at your recall pool. Are we recalling every single woman in a department, and you know there are only two men, and we're not recalling either one of them? Um, is there you know a racial slant here? Uh, is there an age or disability slant here? Uh, I know that it is not your intention to discriminate. But when there is a statistical bias in the recall pool, you can still be sued for discrimination, um, even if there is a neutral policy being applied. So um, this is a really important part of the process. It's aggravating because we don't like to think that any of those uh, considerations weigh in, in at any stage, but you do need to take the, take the steps. Um, when we are talking about furloughs and reductions in force, when we don't need to recall the, you know, the entire workforce, we're looking at the same exact considerations as we were before, right? Um, if we are furloughing or riffing um, all employees or broad classifications, again, we don't have big concerns. If you have decided to dump your entire billing department and outsource that, um, you're not going to have discrimination problems. PR problems maybe, but no discrimination issues. Again, it's when we're selecting members from within a job category to terminate that, that we have issues. Um, once again, as with when we are you know, returning uh, the entire workforce from a complete shutdown, let's start with volunteers. We have concerns when we are picking some people and not picking others. Um, once again, uh, statistical analysis may be uh, a benefit. So if we um, are recalling only 50% of a category of, uh, of LPNs, licensed pract practical nurses, um we want and we realize there's going to be a major um change in the volume of work we have so we've decided to reduce 250. so instead of just uh recalling people on sort of a rolling basis we're saying this is going to be a permanent change in our business structure we are terminating the employment relationship with 250 individuals um, and we're doing it based on performance evaluations <clears throat> so the top 250 will be recalled and the bottom 250 are going to be unemployed with respect to our organization permanently going forward. We need to look at what those numbers <clears throat> show. Is there a statistical bias on the basis of race, sex, age, disability, any other protected category? Um, <clears throat> but we need to really you know, think critically about about those issues um, and understand that there can actually be bias in the underlying data. So you look at this pool and you think we are using the most objective criteria we have, performance evaluations, it's a, you know, we give a, a number ranking. So um, all of the ones and twos are going to be laid off, all of the threes, fours, and fives are going to stay with us. Super easy, super objective, right? The individuals who are conducting those performance evaluations may have latent bias. 
And so they may be uh, making biased decisions and you need to consider that and make sure that you are um, accounting for that, that reality when you are making these reduction decisions. Okay, so how do we deal with the leave issues that come along? You're recalled, but I can't come back, right? Um, this uh, particularly becomes an issue when we are doing involuntary recalls. Uh, so we're not asking for volunteers anymore. We are saying um, all LPNs must return effective June 8th, 2020. Um, how do we handle that? First, if you are recalling um, individuals other than full scale, so if you are going to start by recalling 50% of your LPNs and then you'll recall uh, the other 50% when you need them, you may not take into consideration what their leave, may, leave needs may be. So remember we said we're going to come up with these objective criteria, seniority or performance or whatever the case may be, and we're going to follow that list. And it doesn't matter if you know that Sue has three small children and uh, she doesn't have childcare, and so there's no way she can come back to work. If she is your number two employee and she is the, you know, the next person on the list, you need to recall Sue. Um, and then you let her say to you, I'm so sorry, I have children at home, they're not in school, I have no childcare options, I need leave. That's fine, we're gonna process that next, but we're talking about how do we make the decision itself, and the decision itself needs to be blind to the leave requirements. Um, this is a really hard thing to do because uh, when you are recalled, some of the types of leave are unpaid. Or if you're taking childcare leave, for example, under the expanded uh, FMLA provisions, you're only getting two thirds of your income. And with the current unemployment situation, uh, here in the state of Delaware, the maximum uh, weekly wage is $400. And then you get a $600 federal bump per week. So you can earn up to $4,000 a month on unemployment right now. A lot of employees are making more on unemployment because of that $600 bump than they would when they go back to work. Um, and especially if you're recalled and then you're immediately placed on leave where you're only getting two-thirds of your income, it feels like a real kick in the teeth. And a lot of employers are saying, well, that's not fair. I shouldn't have to recall these people. They're making more on unemployment. They've got to support young children. We shouldn't, we shouldn't recall them. We should just skip over them in the line and go to the next person. That is a very, very risky thing to do because you're doing it from the goodness of your heart, but it can look like anti-parent uh, bias. It can look like bias against uh, elderly and disabled employees. Um, and the reality is that while the employee may be thrilled right now for that opportunity, that $600 bump is supposed to expire on June 31st, I believe. Um, and so effective August 1st, they're going to be making way less money on unemployment. It's going to be a really crummy situation for them financially. What if your business doesn't bounce back? What if you leave all of those individuals on furlough and then you have to risk an entire pool of people that is packed to the gills with individuals who are disabled? over 65 or have children, right? That is going to be a huge liability for you. What if the employee just gets pissed off? What if you give 
a retention bonus to all the people who came back, right? Hazard pay. We're going to give all of you $1,000 next month because you showed up and you did the thing. If I'm on unemployment, I'm missing out on that 1000 bucks and I'm pissed, right? Um, Well-intentioned discrimination is still against the law. And if the employee changes their mind down the road, even if they agreed up front, you will be on the hook. So do not consider these factors when you're engaging in your recall. It is better to recall everybody and then transition people to some of these federally protected leave programs than it is to leave them on unemployment and risk any of the outcomes that I, that I sort of outlined there. All right. So we recall everybody. As employees request leave, we move them to one of these leave programs, and then you move to the next person in the recall list. That is our protocol. Uh, there are three types of leave that we really need to focus on right now. There is the Emergency Paid Sick Leave Act and the Expanded Family and Medical Leave Act. Um, that are Those are part of what we call the FFCRA. Um, that, is, that was the first Coronavirus Relief Act. Um, Families First Coronavirus Relief Act, I think, is FFCRA. Although I could, I could be misremembering that. Then we've got our old friends, the Americans with Disabilities Act and the Family and Medical Leave Act. Um, virtually every state in the union has a parallel state law to the ADA. Um, some have parallel FMLA provisions, and you need to be very alert to those states like New York, New Jersey. Um, here in Delaware, we do not, but, you know, you need to know your local laws and make sure that you're thinking about all of these things. So, FFCRA leave. Um, we have, this is an incredibly complex web, by the way, and so it's really important to um, make sure that you are um, talking to counsel, that you are reading the U.S. Department of Labor's guidelines. Those guidelines, by the way, are being changed very frequently, so you want to check them regularly. But here's the general rule. You can take uh, emergency paid sick leave and EFMLA really for only one reason, which is uh, caring for a child whose school or place of care is closed due to COVID-19. Um, and you get two-thirds of your regular rate of pay for that leave. It is up to two weeks of EFMLA and then 12 additional weeks, I'm sorry, two weeks of EPSL and 12 additional weeks of EFMLA. Um, those can be blended together um, in order to provide 12 weeks of paid leave or they can be taken separately in which case you get two weeks of unpaid leave and 12 weeks of paid leave. Um, and that is something that you need to think very critically about and then talk to employees about um, because employees right now are expecting that they get 12 weeks of paid EFMLA and that's not necessarily true depending on how you structure your leave program. So very, very important there. Um, EPSL, the Emergency Paid Sick Leave Act, has five additional categories for which you can take leave. If you are subject to a quarantine or isolation order, if you have been advised to self-quarantine, or if you are experiencing symptoms and seeking a medical diagnosis. Uh, so the things that directly impact the employee, you get 100% of your regular rate of pay. Remember, it is only two weeks of leave up to a maximum of 80 hours and there are financial caps as well. Then you can take um, 
two weeks up to 80 hours. At two-thirds your regular rate of pay, for childcare, which we already talked about, if you are caring for an individual who meets any of those, those first three categories, right? So um, I have a child who is subject to a quarantine order or has been advised to self-quarantine or is experiencing COVID-19 symptoms. I have a spouse who falls into one of those categories. Um, so caring for another gets me there. And then there's this catch-all category, substantially similar conditions specified by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. We don't have any definition for that yet, so we can sort of ignore it. But those are your qualifying reasons. Um, and that's it. You get one crack at this leave, by which I mean it is 80 hours total. If I get COVID and I take my 80 hours, and then my husband gets COVID and I want to take 80 hours to care for him, the answer is no. I have exhausted my 80 hours of EPSL. I can take leave under a different protection program. I could take traditional FMLA, perhaps, but I cannot take two, two sets of 80 hours of leave. So who's covered by these new FFCRA provisions? Private sector employers with fewer than 500 employees, pretty much all public sector employers. Uh, so if you are a public health provider, um, then, then you're subject to that even if you're huge, generally speaking. Two weeks of leave, up to 80 hours. Um, for part-time employees, the leave is prorated. So if I work 20 hours per week, I will only get 40 hours of EPSL leave. Um, when we're talking about what is your regular rate of pay, it is your salary or your hourly rate, and it includes adjustments such as commission or overtime. So if you have employees with variable rates of pay because of overtime, commission, other things like that, you're going to be doing a look back. And the U.S. Department of Labor has lots and lots of regulations on how to do that. So you need to make sure that you are looking at it. It's not just, oh, what did they make the week before uh, COVID? Um, hit and everything shut down. That's not the way we're doing that. All right, EFMLA, it's the same group of businesses, uh, private sector employers with fewer than 500 employees, all public sector employers. I should note that for both types of FFCRA leave, there is a small business exception if you have under 50 employees, but we are being instructed by the U.S. Department of Labor to invoke that exception sparingly and that you should work collaboratively with employees to give them whatever leave you can give them, even if it is not the full entitlement under the FFCRA. So if you have 49 employees, the answer is not, oh, that doesn't apply to us, moving on, right? The answer is, should we really be asking for this exception? How are we going to justify that we need this exception? We're probably gonna get sued by employees um, for denying their request for leave. So we're going to have to think about how will we justify this to a jury or to a judge. So be aware of that. Okay, again, EFMLA, it's 12 weeks of leave on your regular leave schedule. So in the same way that EPSL is quote-unquote prorated, if I get, if I was working 20 hours per week before the coronavirus hit, um, and I, you're now recalling me and I say, no, 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 I need the 12 weeks of EFMLA. I only get 20 hours per week at two thirds, my regular rate of pay. I don't get 100 
um, uh, or I'm sorry, I don't get 40 hours per week, 100% of a full-time schedule. I get what my traditional schedule was. Um, two weeks of unpaid leave and then 10 weeks at two-thirds of your regular rate of pay. Same, same calculation rules when we're talking about regular rate of pay. Um, again, I, as, as I mentioned, um, the first two weeks of EFMLA are unpaid. With an employee's consent, you can run those first two weeks of unpaid leave concurrent with an employee's EPSL entitlement. But you cannot require right now, and this changes day to day, so check again. Um, but uh, as of this specific moment, you cannot require employees to run their EPSL and EFMLA concurrently. Um, so it is possible that an employee says, no, I want to save my EPSL, and I only want to take 12 weeks of EFMLA. I'll take my two weeks unpaid and my 10 weeks paid. Remember that the pay is for child care obligations only. Traditional provisions of FMLA are unpaid. When is child care leave actually necessary? Um, the guidelines tell us that an employee needs to provide the name of the child and the name of the school or care provider that has closed. And they have to provide you a statement that no other suitable person is available to care for the child. This includes the other parents, relatives, babysitters. Um, I am advising my clients to keep an ear to the ground, know what's going on out there in terms of, you know, our child care facilities open. Um, the regulations also note that if you want that payroll tax credit, that sweet, sweet dollar for dollar payroll tax credit, you have got to have adequate documentation for the IRS. Um, what we are hearing is that uh, for a closed school or daycare provider, um, an email or a public notification sh uh, about the shutdown of public schools will generally be sufficient in, in concert with that employee's written statement that there is no other suitable care available. <clears throat> All right. The ADA, our old friend, um, the, the most prevalent issues we're seeing right now with the ADA are denials of reasonable accommodation requests. So the ADA requires that employers provide reasonable accommodations that would permit a qualified employee to perform the essential functions of the job. An indefinite period of leave is not a reasonable accommodation, but remote work, isolation in the workplace, those are very common um, uh, accommodation requests. They have been my entire career, and we are seeing an increase in those requests, and you need to really, if your entire workforce has been working remotely, you're gonna have a hard time justifying why it is that employees cannot work remotely now if they are disabled. So again, think about <clears throat> whether there is a way to restructure some of your work um, and, and create more of these opportunities, particularly if you have a fair number of high-risk individuals in your workforce. Uh, the EEOC is indicating that accommodations can also include adjustments to safety protocols, including PPE requirements. If you require N95 masks in your workplace <clears throat> and employees are telling you that the N95 masks cause them to overheat or otherwise exacerbate some underlying physical health condition that they have, then you need to think about whether you can relax that requirement. If the requirement is there for employee safety, we may be more willing to relax it than if it is there for patient safety. But you're gonna to have to think about it, you're gonna to have to be able to justify it. 
It can also include things like adjusted work schedules, uh, letting employees come in early uh, or come in really late. So working off hours so that they're in the office with fewer individuals, working weekends, um, and then it can also, as a last resort, include temporary re temporary reassignment to another position um, if there's something that meets their needs. Okay. Um, one of the things that we also expect to see, in addition to a huge uh, escalation in the remote work, work requests, is um, an increase in um, uh, new uh, previously unidentified disabilities. Um, we are hearing through the grapevine, I'm sure that you all are hearing more than I hear, <laughs> given your line of work, uh, we're hearing through the grapevine um, about um, an increased impact of the stress of this pandemic on individuals who had pre-existing depression, anxiety, PTSD, and OCD. Um, and uh, they may not have impacted the workplace before, right? If I was seeing um, a psychiatrist and had a good medication um, regime to manage my depression and anxiety, it's possible that nobody I worked with knew that I suffered from these issues. Um, but the intense strain of the uncertainty of this pandemic has thrown a lot of people off of balance. And so it may be that I have a history of generalized, generalized anxiety or clinical depression or OCD or PTSD that I was managing very, very well, never impacted the workplace. And all of a sudden, I'm showing up and telling you, um, I am so anxious, I cannot leave the house. Um, or my OCD is completely out of control. Whenever I leave the house, my, my compulsions just override me um, and I cannot work in the office right now. Um, those are accommodations, those are disabilities that we need to accommodate. And um, while we can ask for a doctor's note to get deeper understanding, um, we need to treat these things seriously and not assume that they are manufactured. On the other end of the spectrum, everybody is stressed out right now. <laughs> um, everybody is anxious about the situation um, and generalized concerns um, without a diagnosis are, are generally not gonna be considered a disability. Uh, note that for known conditions, even when they're invisible, things that you knew about before the pandemic, we should not be asking for doctor's notes. Um, you know, diabetes, asthma, chronic lung conditions, heart, uh, heart issues, uh, people who are immunocompromised. If somebody took time off uh, under the FMLA last year um, to undergo chemotherapy, um, now is not a great time to say, well, we need some evidence that you're immunocompromised, right? Um, again, you all know more about this than I do, but if, if we have some, some sense of what is um, in somebody's medical history because they have taken uh, leave under the FMLA or they've asked for accommodations under the ADA, be very careful about demanding doctor's notes at this point. Um, last but not least, we do have the FMLA. That's 12 weeks of unpaid leave with job protection. Um, it runs concurrently with any other leave that would normally be available to an employee under your paid leave policies. Um, note that it is 12 weeks of leave total under the FMLA and the EFMLA. There are different qualifying requirements for the FMLA and the EFMLA, right? 
EFMLA is any business under 500. FMLA is only employers with 50 or more employees. So even though it's the same pool of leave, different employers may fall into these buckets. Make sure that you're thinking about whether an employee qualifies under both laws independently. Very, very important. Um, the key FMLA protections we're going to be seeing right now are uh, leave to care uh, for a family member with a serious health condition and uh, leave for the employee's own serious health condition that prevents him from performing the essential job duties. Um, if I have a um, major health condition and my doctor says, you know, it is simply unsafe for you to be in the workforce right now, you might fall into that second category. We're going to give them the FMLA paperwork and we're going to let their doctor tell us what it is that we need to know. All right. So again, um, FMLA could cover employees who are diagnosed with COVID-19 and are not recovered within 14 days. Uh, employees caring for family members uh, with COVID-19 who don't recover within 14 days. Remember that that 14 days is your EPL, EPSL coverage. Employees with serious health conditions who are physically capable of working, but jobs can't be done remotely. Um, and employees residing with high-risk family members whose doctors have told them to shelter in place. I personally think this is a big stretch, um, but we need to provide employees with the FMLA paperwork and we need to let their healthcare providers tell us whether they meet the criteria or not. Okay, quickly let's talk about managing unemployment. We are receiving, as I said, widespread reports of employee resistance to recall. Um, it's because there's so much money available, right? $1,000 until July 31st, and you don't have to look for a job. <laughs> this is um, you know, a, 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 a pretty sweet spot to be sitting if you're an employee who does not want to work. Um, so, employees, generally speaking, who are recalled to work at pre-coronavirus rates, um, so same hours, same rate of pay, should not be eligible for unemployment. If the employee refuses to return to work because the, because the unemployment benefits are so rich, you need to contact your State Department of Labor, tell them that you've got an employee who's declined to return without justification, and that you would like the benefits to be terminated. The federal government is classifying this refusal to return because of a rich benefits package as fraud, and they are instructing states to prosecute. So you don't want to be participating in the shenanigans. Let the State, Depart uh, the State Department of Labor know, and then turn it over to them. You, it's, it's not your problem at that point. Okay. Um, if the Department of Labor's uh, or I, I'm sorry, it is the Department of Labor's job to make that, make that determination. I've got a lot of clients saying, I feel so guilty, right? I mean, I understand why they don't want to come back to work. That benefits package is really nice. You're not making the decision. You're giving the Department of Labor the information it needs to make the decision. It is that simple. Do not make promises to employees uh, about whether they can get benefits, they can't get benefits, how many, like how much money are they going to get? If an employee relies on your statement and you are wrong and they give up a better benefit being employed with you, you can be sued for detrimental reliance. You do not want to be there. So make sure employees know that you're making no promises. This is, you know, the best information I have, but the only accurate information comes from the Department of Labor. Go talk to them. Okay, that being said, employees may continue to be eligible for benefits if they refuse to return to work because um, uh, of unaddressed workplace safety concerns. 
So I'm telling you that you are not complying with the CDC guidelines and you're ignoring me and I am nervous. Um, if they are physically capable of working but can't perform their current job because of a high risk, uh, because they're in, in a high risk pool. Um, and uh, if they refuse to return due to fear of infecting high risk household members. Some states are taking a very lenient stance on these issues um, and really uh, giving employers, employees, excuse me, a lot of leeway here. So um, don't assume that employees who are refusing to return are going to be bumped off of, of, of unemployment. Okay, last but not least, the thing I said you really didn't need to worry about that much, which is workplace safety concerns. Follow the guidance, right? Read it regularly. Make sure that you are up to speed on these things. Follow the information that is being shared by the AMA, by the ADA, whatever your sort of um, professional affinity groups are. Check in with them. See what they're doing. If you are doing what the state and federal government say you should and what your affinity organizations say you should, if you're conducting medical screenings for employees, medical screenings of patients, if you're mandating the use of PPE, you should be fine. Um, OSHA has been issuing a tremendous amount of industry-specific guidance. It is not binding, but it's really useful stuff. I know that they've got information out there on dental practices. Um, I think the CDC put out guidance for pediatric practices, but I, it, it was really about diagnosing COVID in pediatric patients. Um, but check up, make sure that they don't have, uh, you know, specific information for your organization um, or, or your niche practice because they are releasing it very regularly and that can be super helpful. Follow it. And then make sure that you are responding to employee concerns as they come up. Um, no employee should feel like their concerns are being ignored, even if that employee is a colossal nuisance to you, right? Um, somebody in every office is going to be terrified and they're going to ask why it is that you are not spraying disinfectant all over people through air vents in the ceiling every 15 minutes. And you're going to say, that sounds highly, you know, unlikely to work and also dangerous to people. Um, you still need to acknowledge the request and respond to it in a substantive way. Employees who feel like they're being ignored or marginalized are much more likely to sue you. Uh, plus, it's nice to have a paper trail, right? <laughs> this is a lawyer talking here. It's always great to have it written down that we heard your uh, request. We are not complying with it for the following reasons. Thank you so much. We assure you that you are safe here. Um, if you are following all of those guidelines, risks of a successful COVID-19 claim are slim. Um, risks of a successful negligence claim are slim. And I'm talking about employee claims here, not patient claims. Um, and you'll be really well, well positioned to defend whistleblower uh, claims um, if, if, if you have all of these protocols in place. Um, that was a very uh, swift and high level uh, summary, I guess, of, of what we're dealing with here. Um, I'd be happy to field a couple of questions if we have time.
Sorry, I was muted there. Thank you so much, Lauren. I very, very much appreciate it. Sorry about that. Okay, so um, I do believe that we do have a few questions, and um, let me see what we have here. Okay, so um, some of my employees are refusing to wear masks. Can I force them to wear masks? What if they refuse? What do I do? Yeah, <laughs> um, I am getting a surprising number of these types of questions from clients, mm -hmm. none in the medical field so far. Um, but oh, yeah. the yeah. answer is that by and large, yes, you can absolutely require employees to uh, wear PPE, gloves, masks, uh, gowns, whatever the case may be. Um, there are a couple of exceptions. Religious uh, exceptions may apply, although I'm not aware of, of any um, religion that dictates against the wearing of PPE. Um, more frequently, it is, uh, it's a disability-related claim. So I um, have some sort of breathing problem, and N95 masks make it very difficult for me to get enough oxygen. Um, we do have to evaluate those claims to see, is there an accommodation available? Is there a different type of mask you could wear? Can you work remotely? It may be that there is no way for that employee to do their job and to do it safely without PPE in which case they are no longer a qualified individual capable of performing the essential functions of their job. They have no legal protection. You can terminate them. You could furlough them until the circumstances have changed. Um, but by and large, in a normal situation, um, you can force employees to wear PPE. And I will note that political objections are absolutely not a valid basis to, re to refuse to wear PPE right now. Right, right. Okay, how about um, what do I do in case? Okay, I, um, so this is this is an interesting question. It had to do with um, mm -hmm. you know recalling employees. What about if an employee mm -hmm. is ghosting me? Should I um, uh, um, amend the employee handbook right now before I start recalling people in for the, to include a policy mm -hmm. for this? What what should the pro um, procedure be for this? Should I? call, mm -hmm. leave a voicemail, text, send an email, certified letter. If there's no response, then um, let them go. Um, what should we What should we do? Don't forget carrier pigeons and smoke signals. Very important, right? <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> Everything. Um, yeah. All. Um, so I recommend that in the recall letter itself that you give employees a deadline. Um, and I have, I've got quite a like few. Like an actual letter or you say an email or what? Uh, like it depends on the way that your workforce is structured. Okay. Um, so I, one of my clients is very worried about its warehouse workers because a lot of them, they don't have company email addresses. Oh, um, yeah. and <clears throat> a lot of them don't regularly check email because that's the nature of, of the, the work that they do. They're not tied to a Blackberry the way that doctors and lawyers and, you know, um, a, a lot of professionals are. So um, for that particular group, and I know we're not talking about warehouse workers today, but um, for that group, I said, we're going to send letters. It's going to say, uh, you are recalled effective X date. If we do not hear from you by three days prior to that date, we will assume you have voluntarily resigned your employment. And then uh, we're going to place a follow-up call to the person and leave a voicemail. Um, in the state of Delaware and in most states, mail that is properly addressed is presumed to be received. Uh, and that's also for purposes of unemployment. So if an employee says, well, I never got the letter, 
So you never got the letter that I sent to your home address and you never got the voicemail that I left you. At that point, the state is going to say, that's really on the employee. Mm-hmm. Um, if you have company email addresses, um, then you can blast the entire company with the, with the recall letter or the recall email and make clear that they have to respond to you by a specific date. If they don't, we will assume that you have resigned your employment. Very, very important. Uh, in that communication, whether it is sent by fax or U.S. Postal Service or email or carrier pigeon, however we send it, it should be clear that we will continue to accommodate people, we'll grant leave, right? So um, you are recalled X date. If we don't hear from you before that time, we will assume that you have voluntarily resigned. If you are unable to return for any reason, contact HR immediately, provide an email and a phone number. And that is going to give you the coverage that you need so that you can um, safely remove anybody from the payroll who doesn't return. Okay. Okay. How about, um, let's see, I've been reading a lot about coverage about business businesses facing wrongful death lawsuits from employees who die from COVID-19. Is this something my business needs to be concerned about? That's interesting in healthcare, of course. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You guys tend to deal with a whole different type of wrongful death lawsuits. Mm -hmm. Um, What we're seeing uh, and and the group that's getting a lot of attention particularly are in the meat processing um, Mm -hmm. fields. And, you know, we had some issues with a lot of businesses being late adopters of these protective um, measures, social distancing and the use of PPE and mandatory leave policies if an employee was symptomatic in any way. Um, and that has led to lawsuits. Walmart was also sued recently. Um, but if you're doing the things that we talked about, if you are following CDC guidelines, um, there really should be very little reason to worry. What we are seeing in those lawsuits, the allegations are that the employers completely failed to take the protective measures they were supposed to be taking. And that's why they got sued. Um, So if you're taking protective measures, if you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, you should be okay, but always err on the side of excluding employees who might be sick, who are worried about exposure, um, it is better to keep them out of the workplace and send people home uh, than to run the risk that they might be exposing other individuals in the workplace. Mm, okay. And I, let's go ahead and take just one more question right now. Um, mm-hmm. My state's unemployment commission is very employee friendly. Are they really going to take an employee off of unemployment when I try to recall them for work? Yeah. So it's hard to make any broad statements about what's happening with unemployment right now. We are in an extremely unusual situation. Unemployment is generally designed to be just enough so that employees can get by until they find another job. Um, And most states cap your unemployment benefits at something like two thirds of your regular weekly wages before you lost your job. Right now, we have a situation where a lot of employees are making way more money on unemployment than they did when they were working full time. Um, Say what you will about what that means for the pay scales in the United States. It is still the reality that we're living with right now. Um, And we are seeing uh, 
you know, a, a really big difference state to state in how they're managing those situations. And no surprise, it has some political implications, right? Red states are uh, being a little bit more aggressive in removing people from the unemployment roles. Blue states are being a little bit more lenient. Um, but the reality is that if an employee refuses to return to work just because the benefits package is more generous, most states are, in fact, removing them from unemployment because that's not the purpose of these benefits. Um, other states are dealing very differently with these other issues of, well, I'm afraid to return because my elderly mother lives with me. I'm afraid to return because I've got a medically fragile child. Um, that stuff is very much up in the air. But the blatant, I'm not coming back because I'm making $1,000 a month or a week on unemployment, mm -hmm. those people are losing their benefits, yes. <laughs> mm -hmm. Right. Okay, well, um, thank you so much, Lauren. Do you have any other words of advice or anything you'd like um, for us to think about that, um, any other words, any other stuff that you have on your mind? Yeah, a lot of stuff on my mind, but not much of it relevant <laughs> to this. <laughs> um, I would say that um, you know, the, the, the biggest takeaway for all employers right now is that the guidance we are receiving changes virtually daily. So make sure that you're regularly visiting the CDC's website, regularly visiting the U.S. Department of Labor's website, maintaining um, contact with your state legislature, your governor's office, and, and, and really staying up to date on the guidance from all levels of government because it is changing so rapidly. Yes, that is great advice. That is so true. It does. It does change so so constantly, so rapidly. So mm -hmm. thank you so much, and um, thanks for providing us with this information. Appreciate it. So um, my pleasure. Yes, thank you, uh, attendees. Please use the contact information on the screen for any further questions. Um, also, if you send us any questions, we'll forward them on to Lauren. Please remember your PACOM and PMI CEU certificate will be emailed to you from within two days following the broadcast. There's no need to request it. You can also register for any future webinars or request a demo of our compliance solution on our website at firsthcc.com or call us at 888-543-4778. And thank you for joining us.